Hi, my name is Teresa, and I work here in Kansas City at a children's uh, petting farm. And we've been outside all summer long. We try to keep cool by using swamp coolers, drinking a lot of water, and just not moving very much. It's been a really rough summer. Heat is the deadliest weather-related hazard in the U.S. Over the last decade, it's killed an average of 135 people a year. That's more than floods, hurricanes, or tornadoes, according to the National Weather Service. And right now, more than 20 million Americans are under an extreme heat warning. That's according to heat.gov. That website is a new collaboration between the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and other federal agencies. It aims to improve our response to extreme heat. On August 3rd, 124 million Americans were under a heat warning. That's more than a third of the people in the U.S. After the break, we get into how we can adapt to a hotter future and take a look at what we can expect from our climate in the years to come. But we start by looking at steps some cities are already taking and speak to a chief heat officer. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Be a part of future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into our conversation on extreme heat and what we can do about it. Now, some cities, like Phoenix, Arizona, have started hiring chief heat officers. Joining us now is David Hondula. He was hired by the city of Phoenix as its first director of heat response and mitigation. David, welcome to 1A. Hi, Jen. Greetings from Arizona. Thanks for having me on. So what exactly is a chief heat officer? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and as you suggested, a question that cities are only beginning to grapple with. Uh, Here in the city of Phoenix, uh, my charge and the charge of our team is to help coordinate what our city is doing in combination with many partners on both short and long-term strategies. Short-term strategies that can help keep people safe in the summer and long-term strategies that can help cool the city and achieve a higher quality of life for everyone. And and we are trying to coordinate uh, with all city departments to do a better job on that, recognizing the significant public health need in the community, recognizing the inequitable impacts of heat in the community, and recognizing that that heat is not a topic we have done a very good job at managing as cities in the United States for many, many decades. I've been to Arizona a number of times, and it's never been, been cool when I've been there. But how do you define dangerous heat? Well, for, for us, heat is a seasonal hazard. We, we think about uh, getting our heat response programs operational as, as early as possible. May 1st, many of our programs and services come online, and we will continue at least through the end of, of September, and some years certainly push on uh, into October as well. Uh, we, we have a great partnership here with the National Weather Service. We look very closely at their products. We're in conversation with them on some weeks almost a daily basis. Uh, and, and we certainly rely on, on their guidance when they issue excessive heat warnings to really uh, a- amp up what our programs and services are doing. But we also recognize that there are so many other days, as you mentioned, it's, it's always hot here, so many other days that pose a danger for the public, uh, particularly for our most vulnerable community members, especially our unsheltered neighbors. Uh, so, so we try not to turn off our attention to heat, even when there's not an excessive heat warning in effect. But we really, really try to have a steady drumbeat of programs and services as we move through our long and hot summer. What is that temperature threshold when you start to see temperatures push into that excessive heat area? Yeah, the, the National Weather Service uh, uses a great tool called Heat Risk to determine when to issue excessive heat warnings. And it has 
time varying and spatially varying thresholds. So the, the specific temperature that would trigger a heat warning for us and for cities all across the Western United States where that, that product is used will be different in April or May or, or June or, or July or August. This, this time of year as we're chatting today, we'd have to see temperatures pushing into the low 110s to trigger an excessive heat warning. But the heat risk tool, which is based on, on health data and climate data, uh, has a color-coded ranking system uh, so a day like day like today, where our temperatures are only forecast to be in the low 100s, still presents low or moderate heat risk for members of the public. Uh, and that's a reminder to us that we need to keep doing what we're doing because there are still people in, in harm's way. Uh, here in the Phoenix area, we start to see 911 calls come in related to heat. And we even start to see deaths related to heat start, start to emerge with temperatures uh, down into the 80s. And of course, there are many, many days here where temperatures are, are at or above the 80s. Why is heat so deadly? for humans, David? Yeah, there are a number of different ways that our, our body can can struggle with heat. Uh, uh, in terms of the performance of the body, it's it's a bit of a math problem uh, in that we're, we're constantly, when it's, when it's hot, we're constantly trying to shed heat uh, in, into the environment. And, and sometimes the conditions just don't allow our body to do that very well. But there are particular circumstances that, that put certain individuals, uh, especially in harm's way, uh, here, here in Phoenix, for us, our, our focus on heat is closely coupled with our, our focus on, on homelessness. Over the last two years, about half of our heat-associated deaths have occurred among our unsheltered neighbor, neighbors. And there are a number of compounding risk factors with that population, including high exposure, which being, being outside a, a lot of the time. We do see a lot of substance use and abuse in the community, and the use of some particular substances impacts how our body perceives how hot it is and how our body regulates its temperature. Then we have other health challenges. We have difficulties accessing uh, me medical services, uh, and none of these ingredients are very helpful for, for keeping us safe when it's, in, uh, when it's hot. And some of those factors play out in, in other groups of the population as well, but it's not concentrated on any more group here in the Phoenix area than, than on our unsheltered neighbors. We asked our tax club how they're dealing with the heat and one person wrote, I finally had to get an air conditioner this summer. I haven't used one for many years until now. I'm getting older and can't shed the heat as easily. Older folks sweat less, so they tolerate heat less well. David, you mentioned people who are unhoused, but where else do you see vulnerable populations in Arizona? Yeah, the, the unhoused, certainly at the top of our, our, our list, we estimate, uh, you, you mentioned some of the statistics in, in the lead into the segment. Uh, our, our estimate here is that unhoused folks are at somewhere between two and 300 times higher risk than the rest of the population. So that's been first and foremost on our mind. Uh, you mentioned uh, elderly individuals, a number of factors uh, come into play there. Uh, th there are even some very common over-the-counter medications that impact how our body handles the heat. Uh, the, the, the story you shared suggests that also suggests that simply as we age, our body becomes less able to regulate the heat. And, and here in, in Phoenix and Maricopa County, we're also thinking about a group that we call the energy insecure, the folks for whom the cost of electricity, the cost of staying cool and comfortable are simply too high. Uh, depending on how we define energy insecurity, we, we might be talking about a really big segment of the population. More than a quarter of folks here say they're too hot inside their home, at least sometimes during the summer. Uh, and, and understanding what's happening in people's homes and trying to intervene uh, in each and every one of those cases is something that we're, we're trying to be more, more thoughtful about. So with all of these variables at play, how do you factor that into your planning to help people better um, deal with warming temperatures? Yeah, it, it is a challenge, and we're, we're so fortunate to have great 
data here in central Arizona to try to prioritize our programs, try to understand how we should even be spending our time uh, in the first 10 months uh, as a new, new heat office in the fifth largest city in the United States here. Our county health department operates a world-class heat health surveillance program. One of the challenges in our approach to heat nationally and internationally is that we don't have terrific and consistent accounting systems for how many people are getting sick or dying from heat. In the introduction, you mentioned statistics from the National Weather Service in terms of heat-associated deaths. If we pull data from the CDC, we'd get a different number. If we looked at data from the academic community, we'd get a different number. And I think uh, some of the guests coming on next will, will chat about that wide disparity. How much hotter could summers in Phoenix get? It's a, it's a great question that our, our academic partners are, are taking on. We, we all see that the distribution of temperatures is shifting to the right toward higher values. And there's a question of exactly what shape that distribution will have into the, the future. Uh, where, where we see more confidence in the climate models is for the days that are not the most extreme, uh, but, but for us the days that are 110, 111, 112, those could be a few to several degrees hotter by the middle of the century. So a day that today is 112 might be 115 or, or 116. And, and that's bad news for public health because here and in so many other cities, the risk of illness or death with heat has more of an exponential relationship than a linear one. So every additional degree warmer is additionally more, more penal. Uh, and that's all the more motivation to keep, keep doing what we're doing and, and try to invest in programs that not only can help keep people safe, but actually help cool the city over the long term as well. And very briefly, David, what advice do you have for cities that don't have a dedicated heat officer? I don't know that a dedicated heat officer will be the, the right model for, for every city. It's too early to know if it's the right model here in Phoenix, but what has been so critical is to identify a person or team in the organization that has the lead for heat. When we, when we need to coordinate our heat programs and services, and there's a lot to do, we need to know where to take that conversation. That's Phoenix, Arizona's Director of Heat Response and Mitigation, David Hondula. David, thank you for speaking with us. Thanks so much, Jen. Well, joining us now to talk about how we can all prepare for future heat waves is Julie Turton. She's the Heat Health Lead for NOAA's Climate Program Office, and she joins us now. Julie, welcome to 1A. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us from a United Nations Climate Adaptation Conference in Botswana is epidemiologist Chris Ebi. She's a professor in the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington. Julie, a report from the nonprofit research group First Street Foundation showed the U.S. will likely see an extreme heat belt where heat temperatures could get above 125 degrees. First, remind us, what is the heat index and why does that matter? Well, so thank you for the question. Actually, thank you for raising this issue to the, to the readers or to the listeners. Um, so the heat index actually combines other factors in addition to temperature that help you, that are how you experience heat. So heat index is a more reflection of how you would actually experience the heat. It includes humidity and other evaporation factors. So what areas are most at risk for this extreme heat belt? Um, well, you can see that the projections are sort of the, the Midwest, and that's kind of where we're looking. Um, you also see areas that have already experienced other impacts like drought. So you have heat on top of drought. So that's where you're seeing the the trends be really um, even more uh, negatively impacting, be related to heat, because there are so many other complex factors associated with it as well. And walk us through why the heat is expected to get worse. Uh, well, so 
part of the situation is really that we have seen heat increases over the last you know several years. You can see it on the rise. And as the climate changes, we are expecting to see heat waves become more intense, start earlier, and be of longer duration. And that's because there are changes in sort of the atmosphere that affect how our heat waves are formed and how long they last and um, how much they cool down. And one of the other really important pieces is it's not only the peak in daytime temperatures, but the increase in nighttime temperatures. The nighttime temperatures are what allow cities and communities and crops and buildings to cool down. And those nighttime temperatures are not as low as they used to be. That's part of the thing that's contributing to um, the intensity of the heat waves. Julie, assume we hit every country's 2050 climate goals to cut back or eliminate greenhouse gas production. How hot will it get in the best case scenario? Mm, That's a really good question. There are all kinds of um, scenarios used by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the like. Um, So depending on on sort of, as you say, if, if the best case scenario, we are still going to see increases in heat waves and increases in the intensity. And the actual um, number, heat is such a local thing. So a heat, your highest number in, let's just say, in Washington, D.C., in the city is going to be a little bit different than in the suburbs where you have some um, trees and things that help cool down a little bit. So the absolute highest number is actually really hard to predict unless you're in the middle of a heat wave. But we are looking at, you know, some some cities and communities have, you know, over 100 more days between, you know, 100 more days over at least 90 degrees. If you look at the 95th degree percent, it, it becomes a little bit less. But we're looking at a significant number for most cities in the United States of increases in days above 90 or 95. Okay, and so that that's number, in the best case scenario? Yeah. Yes. And so what about the worst case scenario? The number goes up. I don't know that there's an exact percentage, but it is very local. So you're looking at, um, if you look at the long-term scenarios, you you can see anything from, you know, an increase of 10 to 20 days up to 100 days in some of the already hot cities. So like Miami, for instance. Yeah, I don't know that there is an actual single number, though, that will be, you know, a city can max out at. I think that's going to depend on what kind of adaptation efforts, what people actually do, you know, to help mitigate the impact of heat for urban heat islands, for instance. There's a lot you can do to make that number even lower um, than it's projected to be. Professor Ebay, what are some of the effects of heat on humans? It's easiest to start by thinking about our core body temperature. We need to keep that core body temperature within a pretty narrow range in order to protect our cells and our organs. If we can't, either by physiologic mechanisms or by changing location, finding somewhere cool, going to a cooling shelter, as that core body temperature rises, it then, in essence, starts affecting our cells and our organs. They don't want to be particularly hot. And depending on each individual's physiology, then you'll see different kinds of manifestations. There's everything from what was mentioned of having heat rash, that's pretty common in a lot of people, through heat exhaustion, which was also just mentioned. The most serious in the heat, the direct heat-related category is heat stroke. 
heat stroke has high mortality and people who survive often have lifetime problems. But heat also exacerbates cardiovascular disease. When you look after a heat wave at the number of excess deaths, about half of those are due to cardiovascular disease. These are people, for example, who die from a heart attack and would not likely have died during that time period without the heat. So the the best option you have is to avoid getting in trouble. But if you realize, okay, something something's not right, I think I've been overexposed to the heat, or you see someone else who's in distress, what should you do immediately? You need to get them cooled down. You want to get that core body temperature down. And if they look like they're in distress, get them to an emergency department. They need medical attention. Heat stroke is very, very serious. During the heat dome that occurred in the Pacific Northwest last year, the local emergency departments found one of the most effective ways to cool down people was when people came in with these high core body temperatures, people were put into body bags and ice was put into the body bags to help cool people down because it, you cover the whole surface of the skin trying to draw the heat away from the body. Now, Julie, you mentioned cities a little earlier, and heat can be especially bad in those areas. Why? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, and it's really important because so many of us do live in urban environments. But the... Um, the cities do provide a unique urban heat island uh, concept is what it's called. And, and it's particularly acute because the materials that make up our streets and our buildings retain the heat. Um, and depending on the, the number of trees and parks and vegetation and the actual materials built, um, in addition to vehicles and air conditioners and things that are emitting uh, you know, gases that also trap the heat. Our cities are a very unique situation. And the urban heat island um, is actually a very, very real thing. They create microclimates within the urban space. And the urban environment is one of those places. You asked earlier about what, where where is most at risk. The urban cities and communities that have, you know, a core infrastructure like that are actually at pretty high risk um, for, for increased heat loads in the future. Well, there are also certain neighborhoods that are less prepared to deal with extreme heat. What sets those apart? Uh, so, actually, that's a great question. We we have we at NOAA have been helping some cities and communities map their urban heat loads, and in part, the urban, as you said, the heat is not um, it's distributed disproportionately across communities, and so the communities and folks who live closer to green spaces and parks, or who live um, where there are you know, closer access to cooling centers and things that you can do to reduce your um, exposure as well as to get help if you actually are in distress, as Dr. Ebi said, those things make parts of cities more or less vulnerable and the communities that live in those parts of the cities more or less vulnerable depending on, you know, the, the environment immediately surrounding them and their access to cooling spaces and cooling centers and other um, other things like that that help you cool down your environment and cool your body. Professor Ebi, when we talk about these, these areas within urban settings that are more vulnerable and less prepared to deal with extreme heat, is there an equity piece of this we need to look at as well? Absolutely. 
We know from quite a bit of research, including some citizen science that was funded through NOAA, that red line districts are typically hotter, often much hotter than the surrounding area. Part of the process of redlining meant that fewer trees were planted. Many cities are undergoing tree planting programs, which is a great place to start. It does, of course, take several years for trees to grow and provide enough shade. So we need to protect those places in the meantime, which ties back to something that Dr. Hondula said at the beginning of the coordination of working with different groups across the city to protect those at higher risk. And thinking about heat action plans, you want to ensure that you know who the trusted voices are to reach out to the red line districts to make sure that people there really understand what they need to do. Because in many red line districts, it's not just the higher temperatures, but the residents often are in what are called food deserts. They don't have access to quality food. They therefore tend to have higher rates of some chronic diseases, which put them at higher risk from the heat as well. We'll be back with our conversation on extreme heat in just a moment. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Remember, send us your questions and thoughts on future conversations by tweeting us at 1A. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Alex, who says, as an urban forester, I would like your guests to discuss how urban forests can help mitigate the urban heat island effect, what they consider urban forests a public health tool. Professor Ebay, I'll come to you on the public health part of this question. We know from quite a bit of research that areas that are green, called green spaces, forests, parks, do cool the city. They are a very important strategy. And yes, I agree with the listener, that this is an important measure to move forward, provided we make sure we take into account inequities, that we don't add more forests to places that already have a lot of forests, but focus on the places that really need the green space, also need access to water or blue space to help cool the city and provide opportunities to cool down. Here's a message we got from another member of our tax club. I have lived in the southeast U.S. for many years. I'm generally used to the heat, but it's getting worse in the last few years. I had a $440 electric bill last month for a trailer, so we have raised the temperature to 78 degrees when we're home and 82 when we leave for work. I've already done the easy things to lower my power bill years ago, and I've also checked to see how much my appliances use, and it comes down to an old central AC unit that is inefficient, but I can't replace since I rent. The only solution is to be hot when I'm home. Uh, Professor Ebay, I'm sure there are plenty of people in the same situation as this member of our tax club who are renters and they can't make major changes to their home. What advice do you have for them? Check into what the city is doing when there are high temperatures. If cooling shelters are available, go to a cooling shelter. If not, Are your libraries air-conditioned? Are your shopping malls air-conditioned? Find a place to spend some time where you can cool down. And as Julie mentioned a bit earlier, it's also important to think about the temperature at night. As we're having these hotter nights in combination with the hotter days, people are at much higher risk. So think about how to be cooler at night 
during the heat dome here in the Pacific Northwest, some of my neighbors slept on their roof to try and cool down at night. Anything that you can do that will provide you some time in those cooler environments will help protect you from the heat. You know, Julie, as I'm listening to Professor Ebai talk about options people have, you know, maybe going someplace else that has a cooler temperature, a library or a mall, but it, it makes me wonder whether we need to think about our infrastructure a little differently and, and how we make it more heat resilient. Because for some people, they say, oh, that sounds great in theory, but I don't have transportation to those places. I rely on public transportation, and public transportation <laughs> doesn't come where I live. So what does that mean for me? So do we need to be thinking about this more expansively? Yes, actually, we do, and we are. I will say that highlights uh, one of the the need for this um, federal, state, and local partnership. So yes, I think we do have to be looking longer term at how our cities are designed and the infrastructure issue, not only because it is vulnerable to heat itself. So you have, we've been talking a little bit about the direct effects of heat, as Dr. Rebuy has been laying out. There are also a lot of infrastructure impacts on uh, related to heat that affect health also. And you can have things like, you know, energy grid failures or brownouts or blackouts that also affect, you know, your availability of air conditioning, of transportation failures um, that, that may or may not be related to heat. You know, roads can buckle. The public transportation systems, rail, railroads and the like, sometimes also have problems with heat. So there are many ways in which heat affects health, not just directly, but indirectly. So to your point exactly, um, we on the federal side are working across all of the federal agencies to put resources together through something called heat.gov. It's got guidance information, it's got the seasonal outlook, it's got longer term projections to try and at least uh, be the place where you can find federal resources that help cities and communities um, find what they need and, and get them pointed in the right direction and figure out how to be more helpful and how to help them actually manage both the immediate issue of direct effects but also really engage in the longer term um, planning and prevention down the road. Julie, do you think we'll see more climate refugees move around the U.S. or even leave the U.S. altogether to go farther north? Well, I don't, I, I, those are really individual decisions. I can say, though, that we, we are seeing almost double the amount of heat waves versus cool you know, it used to be one-to-one -one in the 70s, and since the 70s, we're seeing about twice as many heat waves days as cold days. So those shifts are happening. I think whether people move is going to depend on how our cities adapt and whether we are able to take, a, you know, we've heard a suite of changes you can do and things you can do to protect yourself and changes that communities and cities can actually make. And then also the federal government resources as well. So I think there is the potential for that to happen. Absolutely. If we don't adapt and if we don't, you know, build better heat action plans or heat into other hazard plans and really take a long-term view, I think the risk is that, you know, businesses and, and people might choose to move further northward. Um, but I think we have a lot in our arsenal of toolboxes um, at all of our, 
government levels to help people manage and make our cities more um, habitable, even with increased heat loads. Well, at this point, our world is going to get hotter no matter what. What do you want people to keep in mind as we all try to adapt? There are several issues I would like people to keep in mind. First, heat kills. It does not have to. That we do have the tools today to make sure that we don't have people unnecessarily dying in the heat. And second, as we've heard throughout this excellent show, there's lots of opportunities as we make adjustments going into a warmer future when you've got opportunities to put in insulation, for example. When you have other opportunities, you can fix some of the challenges we face today so that those challenges will be much smaller in the future. That's epidemiologist Chris Ebai. She's a professor in the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington. Also with us, Julie Turton. She's the Heat Health Lead for NOAA's Climate Program Office. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Stay cool. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.